said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. <laughs> Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill a fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Good morning. What a pleasure to be with you all in this room or whatever room you are in. It's a great joy to be continuing on in our series on belonging. And today we have the great joy of looking at 
a very special topic, and that is belonging to the Father. First of all, I'd like to invite you to travel back in time with me to the dinosaur days, but if you're seeing a T-Rex, that is too far back. I mean the dinosaur days before smartphones and inbuilt car infotainment systems. I'm talking about the early days of vehicle sat-nav. Do you remember those? Those plug-in portable TomTom or Garmin? I had a Garmin. Maybe you still have one and you love it, but I do not miss mine at all. It was always falling off its mount or just randomly cutting out, just shutting down when I most needed it at that approach to some impossible city center interchange or when I'm in some dodgy neighborhood and I just want to get out, but I don't know how to. But there was one thing that I did grow strangely fond of in my old sat-nav, and that was the cool, calm lady's voice that would routinely tell me that she was recalculating, recalculating. And she may as well have been just on constant replay the amount of times she needed to tell me that in my case. And was she slightly sneering at me for having to say it quite so frequently? Quite possibly. But I did find it reassuring that someone with a way better sense of direction than me was getting me back on track to my destination. The story that we just watched on video, a story that Jesus told and that you can find in Luke 15, and it's most widely known as the parable of the prodigal son, that story has journey recalculation at its very core. But it's not so much about geographical destinations as about cardiographical ones, if that word even exists. It's about relational journeying. It's about heart territory. And it concerns these two sons who, without even realizing, just don't seem able to find their way to their father. So we're going to take a look at their journey. It's a bumpy ride. So buckle up, but just keep in mind, we are headed for the destination that we are all divinely wired for. Our true place of belonging, at home, in destination, dad. Well, whatever satnav you might choose, every successful satnav journey begins with putting in the right address. I don't know about you, but sometimes if you've put in a destination in your satnav, haven't you sometimes found yourself in a completely different street or even area than the one you were expecting? I know I have. We're in this area, we're in the SL9 postcode, and it's a large area. If I want to find an address in this area, 
And I go put it in my sat-nav, and I'm maybe busy, distracted. If I put in, say, PL9 by mistake, I'm on my way to Plymouth, and that is a mighty big detour to where I want to go. We've got to put in the right address. The problem with the two sons in the story is that when it comes to navigating towards their father, they are working from the wrong postcode. They are working from inner information inside of them that is faulty, it's inaccurate concerning their father. So they're heading for a different father than their true father, and it's getting them into some really dodgy territory. Let's take a look. The younger son, he's working from the inner map, if you like, of his father, that his father's a remote, distant provider. Sure, they live in the same house, but he doesn't see him in terms of relationship. He doesn't see him in terms of partnership with him. No, he sees him in terms of resources, what he can get from him. And that's especially in the frame, now that he's got this new scheme of actually upping and leaving the farm. Oh, he is restlessly bored. He is feeling suffocated in that place and can't wait to get out to the bright city lights. It's worth bearing in mind that this younger son, he's the second born. So he's going to inherit a lot less than the older son and heir to the farm estate. In that culture, it would be one-third for the second one to the two-thirds that the older brother and heir would be getting. Could it be that this younger son has, he's clocked it. His father's got his eye on the older boy. He's the one that's the heir to the whole estate. Could he be the preferred son in this boy's eyes? He knows also that this older brother, and let's face it, there's not a great relationship between the brothers either. He knows that boy is the one that's going to get to call the shots on the farm. The farm's going to him, not the younger one. So the younger boy is already thinking, no way I'm going to be under the management of that son. I'm out of here, I'm going to make my own mark in the world. Well, it's one thing to see your father as a means to an end. It's quite another to wish him the end. And to the listening crowd, gasping in horror, that's exactly what they would have heard when Jesus told the story, because when the young son is asking for his inheritance early, excuse me, they would have heard in that the boy saying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead. I want what's coming to me now, and if you don't have the good grace actually to die, then give it to me now, because I want to get out of here. <clears throat> and when I get out of here, I'm not coming back. In other words, you're dead to me. That boy has reached the, the destination. Destination, no dad. 
And I can't help seeing a very sad parallel between this second son and a very high-profile second son that we've heard about a lot recently, who hasn't left the farm, but the firm, and who has a father, but doesn't allow himself to belong to his father. Meanwhile, back at the farm, the older brother, now he upholds the image of a good son, respecting his father, working diligently for him every day. But make no mistake, this boy is also working from a faulty inner map of his father. He sees his father as a withholding taskmaster, someone who requires diligent labor every single day without recognition or reward. But it's a wrong assumption. It's a self-imposed, inaccurate inner map. I mean, we have to ask ourselves, why is this son laboring so hard when there are obviously many paid servants to do all the heavy farm laboring? He doesn't need to, but he has this map, he has this inner information that his father is stingy, that his father is a slave driver, and that he gives him nothing. Ironic, really, when he's just inherited two-thirds of the estate. He could have had any goat, sheep, calf he wanted at any time to have any amount of friends to any amount of parties. But he doesn't because his inner map of his father is faulty. And when he sees his wasteful brother coming back to the farm, that brother who's been responsible for slashing a third of the farm estate that he's going to go on and inherit, the ugly fruits of this distorted heart image come out in this anger, in this blaming and this accusation of his father publicly, something that would have drawn more gasps of horror from the crowd than even the younger boy going off to the far country. An older son would never disrespect his father publicly like that, but out comes this venom. He's your son, you did this, you should... He's ended up at destination bad dad. I've got two questions at this point. I don't know about you, but I'm wondering, why are these sons like this when they obviously have such a good father? Why do they have such heart distortions? And the truth is, we don't know. We don't have any detail. Is there some past trauma in the family? Is there some history, some life event that's contributed to them being like this. We don't know. And it's good that we don't know. I mean, there's no mother in the picture. Could her absence be part of it? We can only speculate. But the lack of detail is helpful because it means that we can place ourselves in the story without ruling ourselves out because, well, my circumstances aren't like theirs. 
My second question is, why didn't the father act more forcefully? I mean, he didn't have to give the younger son his inheritance early. He could have punished that older son, or at least sanctioned him in some way, when he treated him so disrespectfully in public. But he didn't. Why? And that's exactly the point that Jesus wanted to make. This is an extraordinary father who acts in ways that we don't expect him to. This father would rather have his own heart broken, which it was, and his own reputation, publicly and privately, trashed, which it was, than to force either of his sons to receive him as their father, to belong to him. He doesn't want to force belonging. He wants them to choose for themselves. And he would rather wait for that day when they come back, wait with hope, wait with faith, wait with expectation and open arms for the day when they come back and they finally see he was our destination dad all along, but we just didn't know it. Destination dad. I want to level with you personally. I know what it is to be that restlessly bored kid, suffocating and feeling like I just want to get off the farm or the God, religion, doing church, circuit. I know what that feels like. I know what it is to be the lethargic, numbed out, checked out, what's the point child who, I don't even know if what I do is needed. And the other kids, they do it way more diligently and obediently than I do. I know what that feels like. But I also know what it feels like to be that kind of duty laborer, to just keep going, to go through the motions, dull Bible reading, dreary, quiet times, reluctantly turning up for church meetings. I know what that is. Not all the time, probably not nearly as often as I used to, but I still drift there sometimes. Does that shock you? Or might you be willing to admit that you go there sometimes too? That you might be there right now, numbed out, checked out, bored, asking what's the point? I know what that feels like. But there's something different for me now. Those kind of feelings, I don't feel condemned by them anymore. I don't see them as proof that my heart's grown cold for Jesus or that I'm just not a very good Christian. I don't feel that anymore. Instead, I see them as signs. I see them as symptoms that somewhere along the line, my coordinates concerning God the Father somewhere 
they've gone off. That somewhere I've been navigating towards a different father than my real father, God. That I've been missing destination dad. I've been missing who he really is, or his real heart for me, what he really wants of me. So I'll sit with him, and he will revise my coordinates concerning him. He will help me recalculate him, because you know what? He's got a way better sense of direction than me. And he'll help me revise who he is. He'll help me see, hey, that version of me that you've been navigating towards, that exacting taskmaster, scolding judge, that dull, disinterested, disappointed dad, hey, that's not me. That is not me. That might be an overhang of your earthly father. That might be misrepresentations of me. That you've gathered along the God, Church, religion circuit. That could even come from the culture you live in, but that is not me. And He'll help me discover once again, I'm the good, good Father, and I've put the wild, free life of my Son in you. And my farm is a very big place. And you have a special place on that farm to release that wild, free life of my son that flows from you. He's wild, you know, our God. He will breathe new life into tired old routines in our relationship with Him. Sometimes He'll say to me, "Let's just refresh quiet time. Put away all your books. Just come with me. Walk over the fields with me." Just be out in my creation together. Let's just see what we see. Let's hear what we hear. I don't want you listening to the voices of any circuit. What are you doing on a circuit? I didn't make you for a circuit. I made you to hear my voice, to roam free in the kingdom that I have created. And he'll take me and whisper to me again, who he really. Is, but faulty coordinates concerning the father—that was only one half of the boy's problem. They also had difficulty when it came to navigating how the father sees them, especially when they've messed up. Their default setting. Was that, and the crowd listening would have been the same as well. By the way, was that when you when you make a mistake, especially a big one, you become unacceptable. Unacceptable means you deserve to be separated. You deserve to be cut off, shunned, and shamed. And that was in the culture of the time. That's also in the culture of our time, by the way. Cut off, shunned, and shamed. But in the story that Jesus told, we don't see that. We don't see that at all. Does the father in the story 
allow his sons to walk out the consequences of their bad choices? Yes, absolutely, he does. But in terms of them seeing him as only willing to accept them back if they go and drudge in the fields for him, if they prove through their hard work that they really mean it, they couldn't be more wrong. It's time to recalculate the father yet again. Can I ask you a personal question? You don't have to answer it in public, don't worry. When you feel like you're... When you feel like you failed God, or you faltered somewhere, even if it's in a general kind of, I just don't feel very passionate for God, I just don't feel I'm enough for God, I don't feel like I've... That. When you feel that, let me ask you, who do you see, honestly, needs to do most of the running to put that right? All of the running? I don't know about you, but I feel like we are so steeped in a culture, and even in our own families, where in the aftermath of making a mistake, getting something wrong, which we all do, there's a kind of, well, prove to me that you're sorry. What have you got to show for yourself? How can I believe that you've really changed? We're so used to that, although in our culture, this cancel culture we have now, you don't even get that. You don't even get a chance to prove that you're sorry. You're just canceled and your books get burnt. And I think that without realizing, we can transfer that onto Father God and see that we're going to have to do an awful lot of running to hope for reconnection with him, for him even to look at us. And some of us have been running and running for years. But that's not what we see in the story that Jesus told. Look at that mess-up boy. Just watch him. Do you see him? He's coming plodding back wearily to the farm. He's probably feeling sorry for himself, very unsure of the reception he's going to get. And to be honest with you, he is not coming back with the best of motives, not at all. He's not coming back to restore relationship with his father. He's not even thinking of living in the same house as his father. He's thinking of coming back, asking his father for a job so that he can get bed and board and live out in the servants' quarters with the other staff. He's still seeing his father in terms of provision. He's not yet at destination, Dad. But his father is having none of it. However feebly, pathetically, and imperfectly this returning son draws near, what does the father do? If you're following in your reading, or if you want to check it later. Look at verse 20. The father does something, again, causing more gasps of horror from the crowd, so countercultural. 
in hitching up his robe, which a man of his seniority and standing in the community would never do. That's a cultural no-no. Hitching up his robe, and what does he do? He runs. He runs to that plodding boy. The father does all the running. And he enfolds him in this embrace of utter welcome, acceptance, forgiveness, and restoration. He's enfolding him back. He's not, he's not interested in cutting off, but in pulling close. He's enfolding him back. You're my son. You belong in the house with me. Come back and be with me in my house, and restoring to him his dignity in the finest robe that's put on him. And he's restoring to him his authority. I don't know if we can get our heads around this. This is the same son who completely shirked his responsibilities on the farm beforehand, and then is responsible for cutting off a good third of that whole estate, squandered it, it's gone. It'll never come back. That same son, who's been responsible for wrecking a lot of the farm, he's now being given the father's permission to transact business for him on that very farm. I mean, what kind of father is this? He's an amazing, extraordinary father, full restoration. Wow. There's something even more, though, that we don't see at first glance in the father's running to the boy. It's something that the listening crowd would have been very well aware of. The father is also running to his son to protect him. Protect him from what? From the locals. From the ceremony that the father knew this younger boy was in big danger of being subject to very soon. Ceremony, what ceremony? It's the kezazar. What is kezazar? Apart from a really, really cool word to say, kezazar. This was a local custom when a wayward son went to another country and squandered the family inheritance among the Gentiles. If he dared to come back, the men of the community would gather together, they would come out to the returning offender with a big clay pot and smash it on the ground in front of him. The broken pieces signifying, you are cut off from this community, you are cut off from your family, you are not welcome here, you are shunned. The father knew that was coming. The son would have known that too. But the father, in going and enfolding him in his embrace, in full restoration, forgiveness, I accept him back. He's mine. He's going to come and live with me in my house. He's going to have full authority to transact business for me. All the voices of the accusers were completely silenced, and they even got invited to the feast. What father is this?
What could change for us if we could still see him as that same running, restoring father? Not just the day that we first came into his family. Yes, that day, of course. But those days when we feel that we so imperfectly draw near and we still have such a long way to go, we're still a long way off to where we think the Father wants us to be. What would happen if we, when we go into our quiet times, into our worship times, if we could, as we plod in, imperfectly drawing near, we could see the Father rejoicing and honoring our humility that we didn't stay away from him, we didn't try and fix it ourselves, and we didn't try and go and drudge for him in the fields, but instead we allowed ourselves to plod imperfectly near, to draw near as best we knew how, so that he could perfectly, swiftly, spectacularly come running near to us. Not all drawing near is equal. And guess who's drawing near is better than ours? The Father loves to come drawing near, running up to us by his Spirit, reminding us that robe of dignity, the utter perfection of my son Jesus, that never left your shoulders, that's always been on you, that's how I perpetually see you. Those sandals of sonship, they've never come off your feet. You'll always be my son. You'll always be my daughter. And that ring of authority never rescinded. I give you full permission to transact business for me in my kingdom, wherever you go. And I will help you fend off every voice of the accuser that tells you you're not good enough, you don't have anything to offer God, you shouldn't this and you haven't that, I will help you beat them all off. Because we don't get the pot of shame smashed on the ground in front of us. Do you know what we get? We get the checkered flag of his welcome that says, son, daughter, you're here again. You're at destination, dad. Because you know what the turning point is in this story, the real turning point? Often, we think of it as the point when he left the pig pen to come back to his father. But the real turning point in this story is when the son received the father's embrace when he allowed himself to be fathered by his father, when he allowed himself to belong to his father, to receive him gladly, willingly, that was the point when his heart changed. That is the place of real heart transformation. Up close, 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 close to your father, choosing to belong to him. That is when he reached destination, Dad. And today, we need to recalculate the Father. 
So we don't just have a father, but we allow ourselves to belong to him, that we don't just sing about how he loves us, but we allow ourselves to receive that love, to come up, to allow him to come in very close, 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 and give us that reassurance of his acceptance, his welcome, his full authority, his dignity. Why not let this be the day, today, when you say, maybe it's for the very first time because you're not even sure that you're in the Father's family, or maybe it's with a fresh sense of understanding that let this be the day where you say, where I say, Abba, Daddy, Papa, Father, I belong to you. I willingly choose you. Let this be that day. And then give praise to this extraordinary running Father. Amen. We're going to take time, we're going to give ourselves space just to respond to the running father. Part of that will be through song, some of it will be through silence. We're also going to give opportunity for anyone who wants to Take that opportunity today to say, Abba, I belong to you. You might want to come forward. You might want to be anointed with oil as a sign that that is your declaration. That's what you want. We're going to take a song. You'll know the words. It's familiar. But use it as your own personal response. See it as an invitation, not from any person, not from the worship team, not from Stephen, not from me, but see it as an invitation from the Father, directly to you. Do you know what the invitation is? To imperfectly draw near, so that he, by his Spirit, can wonderfully, perfectly, swiftly come running to you, and you can find what you most need in his close embrace today. What is that? What do you most need? Acceptance? Forgiveness? Safety from the accusing voices? Is it permission just to rest from the drudge? Sons in the room, sons, do you need to hear him say to you, son, I'm really proud of you. I'm proud of you. Do you need to hear him say that he trusts you? He trusts you with his authority. He trusts you with kingdom business. Or do you need to hear that he has celebration 
in his heart concerning you. Not a scowl, not a frown, not a disappointed look. He's in celebration. The checkered flag is out for you. It's right there, whatever you need, in the close presence of your good, good father.